Okay, a new term, climate solutions, denialism. What the heck is that? Well, starting about a year ago, the community of pundits and writers that are engaged in promoting the idea that we urgently must rapidly change our energy systems, the idea of a rapid energy transition that's coming, inevitable and needed. And I shouldn't have to say the obvious, that's because obviously of climate change, the idea of a rapid energy transition uh, is sort of evoked a new term because the people ostensibly who oppose that idea um, are opposing the idea that the world needs to do it. That is, these are the climate science or climate change deniers, that uh, odious invective attached to scientists who dare to debate about the data, the models, the forecasts. But it's a, that's an entirely different subject, the subject of what is it going on with the climate? What are humans doing to the climate? Let me stipulate up front, humans have an impact not only on the climate, they have an impact on everything in the ecosystem of the planet we live on. We humans do, a lot of us, going to be a lot more of us, we have impacts. It's just un, undeniable to use a, a word. But the the debate around that domain, climate change, the science of the modeling and understanding of the glo global climate system, that whole domain of science is independent from, unrelated to, and has something to do, and, and it has essentially nothing to do with the domain of the science of how humanity produces energy. These are independent domains, independent magisteria, if you like. The physics of energy, the physics of the systems and engineering systems that we can build to produce energy have nothing to do with the theories and ideas and predictions about climate science. They're only related because of the obvious fact that almost every uh, proposal for dealing with the uh, climate change concerns have to do with changing our energy system. So obviously they're related in a policy sense, in a practical sense, but they aren't the same areas of physics. They aren't related. And as all of you know, uh, if you listen to any of my podcasts or read anything that I write, I have made a career of writing about how things work in the engineering and science field, but not in the not in the domains of the atmosphere or ecosystems or biological systems. It's not what I write about, talk about. I read about it, but I don't write about that and talk about that. I'm interested in it. I've been studying it for many decades, but it's not what I write and talk about. What I write and talk about, in effect, to cut to the chase, is that there aren't any solutions, quote unquote, to abandoning hydrocarbons in the near or foreseeable future for humanity. So proposals that we're going to rapidly transition away from that uh, are now being labeled climate solutions denialism. Okay, uh, if you if you follow what I write and what I say, and what others who follow and study this domain of the energetics of producing essential energy for society, if you follow that, you you would reach the conclusion that uh, the data do show, the facts show, not the theories, not the models that there are no solutions that exist today to abandon hydrocarbons. And that 
invariably leads to a question once once uh, once you become cognizant of that fact, and it is a fact, it's not a theory, it's not a model, it's just a fact given what's going on in the world. So I'll talk more about it in a second. Once you once you accept that possibility, even if you don't agree, you know, if you're not entirely convinced, you invariably get to one of the most common questions that I get in writing, lectures, speeches, events, private meetings, cocktail parties, when I dare to talk about such things, at what's left of cocktail parties or at bars. People always say, and it's a reasonable question, well, if what's being proposed aren't solutions to abandon hydrocarbons, what do we do? And, and the what do we do is always about what do we do about providing energy, but but not by not using hydrocarbons? What do we do? I have some answers for that, which I'm going to get to. Uh, but first, let, let's talk about the, the this, this odious label that's now extant. And it's important to talk about this odious, invective climate solutions denialism, because the, the next step that is being proposed publicly, not secretly, is that people who are promoters of solutions denialism are peddling in misinformation and should be canceled or silenced uh, wherever possible because they are harming the cause of a rapid energy transition. So it's important to know what we're what we're ostensibly denying. I mean, what, what is it exactly that uh, is being denied by pointing out that, for example, one of the most, in fact, arguably the single most important thing for humanity's survival survival and prosper, prospering is the availability and expansion of cheap and available energy. It is fundamental to human progress. It is a, a fact that over all of history, for the first time in human history, the last a century and a half, half has seen the share of economies that are devoted to acquiring food and fuel for survival decrease from 80% of all economic output to say 15 to 20% of economic output. What, what has happened is that the rest of the money in the economy gets freed up for things like healthcare, environmental protection, having fun, improving safety and resilience to predations of nature, whether bacteria, viruses, or storms. Freeing up of money because of the advances in technology that have pushed the share of society's wealth needed to acquire food and fuel into the background is one of the biggest and most important transformations of all of human history. So it matters enormously what we're going to replace hydrocarbons with that have managed to do that. It's because it is entirely because of hydrocarbons, the machines that use oil, gas, and coal, that we've managed to make this profound change in the structure of societies and where societies now spend, stated again, less than a fifth of all of available economic resources on getting food and fuel. That's where we are today to all of history, where it was more than three-fourths as much in many societies as 90% of all economic resources and economic activity devoted to getting food and fuel. So it's important to know what we're replacing the existing system, which is, again, which I've said in earlier podcasts, I'll say it again, for calibration, 84% of all the world's energy comes from hydrocarbons today. It was 86% 20 years ago. Uh, so we still are deeply dependent on hydrocarbons to operate our societies, to provide for wealth, prosperity, well-being, safety, just survival. 
What are we replacing it with? What are we, what are we denying those of us who say we can't easily replace that? Well, are we denying the energy density of materials? I mean, is it, how can one deny the fact that the energy density of oil is 5,000% higher than the energy density of lithiated chemicals? The latter being the chemicals you use to store electricity in a battery. The former being the oil you keep in a fuel tank to power an internal combustion engine. That difference is locked in the physical chemistry of the universe we live in. There's no denying that fact. That fact has consequences in terms of how much material you need to mine to make a battery, how far you can go, how much the battery costs, how much environmental impact the battery has. Denying that fact uh, doesn't change the fact. Are we denying the density of photons arriving at the surface of the earth? Because the distance the earth is from the sun dictates how many photons arrive that the silicon photovoltaic cells can convert into electricity, and which in turn, in the laws of physics, how many of those photons could become electricity is limited by physics laws. Can't deny those physics laws. There's very low conversion rates by comparison to what people think. Less than a third of the photons coming in become electricity. You can't get more photons without moving the earth closer to the sun. So you can't deny those facts, but those facts have consequence. It determines how many solar panels you have to build, how much land area you have to cover. Those are calculations one does. Denying those facts is doesn't change them. Or do we are we denying the, the physical chemistry, the facts of the thermodynamics, the physical chemistry that make it possible to make steel or pharmaceuticals or make silicon, for example, pure silicon that makes it possible not only to make photovoltaic cells, but to make microcomputers, computer chips. You're fabricating uh, polysilicon, crystalline silicon on which we make computer chips, fabricating that silicon uses a thousand times more energy per pound than making steel. And we are now producing silicon from computer chips annually by the kilotons, tens of kilotons a year, with using thousands of times more energy per ton or pound than making steel. Or put differently, we're now using amounts of energy to make silicon devices comparable to the amount of energy used to make steel things. Is it is that relevant? Of course it's relevant because we're gonna want a lot more silicon in the future to point out we're gonna have more energy demand because of that fact. It, you can't deny that fact. Are we denying the fact that it takes 500,000 pounds of rock dug up out of the earth to make one battery for one electric car that weighs, the battery weighs about a thousand pounds. You have to dig up ore rocks containing copper and nickel and cobalt and zinc and manganese, depending on the kind of battery cameras you have. And you need aluminum. All this requires digging stuff out of the earth. These are things that we know a lot about. It is a fact that it takes close to 250 tons of rock dug out of the earth to make the half ton battery for an electric car. It's just a fact. Do you want to deny that fact? Stating that fact and its consequences is not a form of solutions denialism for those that are enthusiastic about electric vehicles. It's just a fact that you have to put into the calculus of the consequences of promoting electric vehicles. But one of the consequences, which is a, another fact that the International Energy Agency is not denying, is that the world will need hundreds of new mines of all kinds for dozens of classes of minerals, hundreds more new mines that now exist, and that they are not now being built, and that they cannot be built in timeframes commensurate with the need for the materials to build the batteries, electric cars, the solar arrays, and the wind turbines. It takes about 300 to 400% more copper 
to make a single electric car than to make a single conventional car. That's a fact. You can deny the fact. Silly to deny it because it's just a fact. You can't change that fact in the universe we live in for a very long time. It has consequences. It impacts copper demand, again, up the food chain to where the copper comes from. It's a fact that the U.S. is not mining. It's not deniable. You're not a denier if you say that promoting wind, solar, and battery technologies means that you're increasing your dependence on mines elsewhere and refining industries that convert the raw material into useful chemicals. You're, de you're depending on those coming from elsewhere. All of them are elsewhere because no one is building them in America. In fact, this administration and previous ones, many of them, have made it difficult to open mines and refiners and in fact have canceled many mining permits. America is not doing that. So it's a fact that switching from a gasoline engine to an internal combustion engine exports jobs, exports pollution, exports labor. That's just a fact. It's a fact in the IEA's own data, the International Energy Agency. Denying that doesn't change the fact. It's a fact that electric vehicles are not zero emission vehicles. And no, this has nothing to do with the emissions from the power plants needed to charge the batteries, because one can imagine uh, charging the batteries only when you're allowed to, when windmills are running or the sun is shining. One could imagine doing that so that it, you would think you have a zero emissions vehicle, except you don't. The energy used to acquire the materials and the processes and the energy used to convert the materials into useful form to fabricate a battery lead to carbon dioxide emissions upstream, making the battery from before it's even delivered to your driveway. Enough so that somewhere between half of all the emissions you don't cause when you replace your internal combustion engine to all of the emissions that you avoid by driving your electric vehicle, somewhere between half and all of it are in fact emitted elsewhere in making the battery. That's a fact. You can deny the fact, but it doesn't change the fact. If a Volkswagen at their website, God bless them, Volvo's done the same, have put up studies on this fuel cycle, this cradle-to-grave analysis, illustrating the fact that electric vehicles are not zero emissions. It's also a fact, you can't deny it because it's in the long-run history of our, of our society, that the average ore grades for minerals are going down. What do I mean by that? The share of rock you dig up to make things, say to get copper, the share of the rock is declining. But inversely, you have to dig up more rock to get the same pound of copper now than you did 20 years ago, 200 years ago. And the trend is continuing in that direction as the International Energy Agency itself has pointed out. That will lead to increased mining and environmental impacts, increased energy use to produce the same amount of copper for the electric vehicle and increased emissions from all that industrial activity upstream somewhere else on the planet. Denying that fact and accounting for it and being aware of it doesn't change the fact. Finally, it's a fact that whatever we build now with the money we're now going to spend on building alternative energy machines will be based on machines that exist today, not that those that we imagine might be better in the future. That's a fact. And that fact has relevance because you can, you can figure out how much it will cost to build lots of batteries, lots of EVs, lots of wind turbines and solar arrays to replace coal, gas, and oil. You can figure this out because we know the numbers. They're not difficult to come by. You can find them the magic Dr. Google machine. These are very well-known costs. And the cost of what things are today determines how much it costs to build things that you want for the immediate future for tomorrow. So 
those facts redound to a conclusion that I've written about many, many times is that there is no rapid energy transition and when is it possible to now label that as climate solutions denialism is, um, well, we'll just say it's rich. Not, no pun intended. It's going to enrich in a lot of kleptocrats who want to build those machines, but we'll put that aside. So people always say, so what, what can we do? What should we do? Well, uh, Europe's having to answer that question right now. What can they do? So Europe is far further down the path of expanding the share of energy from electric vehicles, wind turbines, and solar modules than America is. America's chasing Europe right now. And of course, an interruption in their energy supply, which has come courtesy of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, this has caused a great consternation, economic chaos and destruction across Europe. In fact, it is not too much to state that the effect of the loss of natural gas principally from Russia into Europe is right now in the process of deindustrializing Europe. Something like half of the fertilizer plants are shut down. Huge swaths of metal processing and steel mills and aluminum mills are shut down. Many of these will never come back online. Whether they come back online will have a lot to do with the cost and availability of hydrocarbons in the near future. But there are those who propose that, that saying that is a climate solutions denialism because many people are seriously proposing that if Europe had increased its construction of windmills and increased its velocity of construction of batteries to store electricity, that they could have avoided this crisis with Russia. Well, we can do some arithmetic on this without uh, spending a lot of time on this one specific subject before I get to what can we do. It is worth considering the pickle that Europe's in because the pickle that Europe's in right now is the direction that America is now chasing. It's the path America is now on with the hundreds of billions of dollars proposed to be spent in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act to build lots more windmills, electric cars, and so on, and sell them in America. So Europe has had just a, a massive amount of spending, probably close to $2 trillion over the last two decades to expand the use of solar, wind, and batteries on that continent. And it has reduced significantly the share of its energy it gets from hydrocarbons. It's now only 70%, <laughs> only. So the 70, it matters where the 70% comes from. Well, it mattered a lot of it came from Russia. So when Russia essentially eliminated on a net accounting basis, 20% of Europe's natural gas, I mean, Europe got a lot more than that total share of its gas from Russia, but the European nations were able to pivot and take more gas from America and LNG tankers that was destined for Asia and deliver it to Europe. They reversed pipelines. They did fuel switching by many, many uh, industrial boilers that use natural gas, switched to burning oil. Even some power plants switched from natural gas to burning oil. They've revived old coal plants that, and, and, and then and been able to turn off the natural gas plants or gas consuming. So net, net all that effort has uh, reduced the impact of the Russian embargo, if you like, since that Europe's net supply of natural gas is down 20%. Here's some arithmetic for you. This is not me denying anything. It's just arithmetic. Uh, natural gas is about a quarter of Europe's total energy supply. So if you do the arithmetic, 20% and a quarter, uh, you lost 20% of your gas net net. That's about a quarter of all your energy. So roughly 5% is the total net shortfall in Europe's energy availability right now going into the winter. That 5% has caused energy prices to skyrocket over a thousand percent. So that's what's causing the deindustrialization of Europe. That's happening because 
the 5% matters enormously. You can't turn off steel mills in many cases. You can't turn off glass foundries. If you turn them off, they don't come back on. They are designed to run continuously for the 30 or 40 years that they're built for. So this carnage is being caused by a relatively small, in a sense, interruption of Europe's energy supply, a mere 5%. So Europe's response has been to rapidly and aggressively increase the natural gas it has in storage, principally in subterranean caverns, but also in you know surface storage tanks, but mainly subterranean caverns. And they've done a, a great job. They now have uh, almost two months of total natural gas supply in storage. So what you'd want to know if you really believe the narrative that what they could have done, what they should have done instead, is build more wind turbines and batteries. So you should you should answer the question. This is not a it's a reasonable question to ask. And it's one doesn't one gets a conclusion that to beat this to death will get labeled climate solutions denialism. To replicate the amount of energy that Europe now has in storage to get through the winter, uh, to do that with batteries instead, would require building about $40 trillion worth of lithium batteries. 40, I'll say it again, I'm not misstating it, not billion, not million, $40 trillion worth of batteries. So all the world's battery factories combined could produce that many batteries if they operate continuously for 400 years. Build more battery factories. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> just think, just do the do the math of this in your hand. And hand-waving about more factories and better batteries doesn't change the fact that to keep economies running, businesses running, people warm, things and people literally alive, to replicate the amount of energy and storage that's essential for survival this winter in Europe would require that many batteries, $40 trillion worth. This is stunning. It's a stunning uh, scale problem in the energy systems that are required to keep humanity operating. And to keep beating this uh, so-called dead horse even more, that fact, putting that fact out there, is not a form of denialism about solutions because it's not a solution. Self-evidently, there is no solution in building enough batteries to replace that quantity of natural gas in storage. So what do we do? I mean, what if these things don't work, what's the solution? How do we get off hydrocarbons if we want to get off hydrocarbons? Well, I, the short answer is uh, new technologies and patience. That is, there are always new technologies. They are, they are emerging. They are coming along. They don't come along as fast as people like as policies would propose, but they will come along in due course. It's just they'll take a long time, a lot longer than policymakers would hope for, a lot longer than people who created the label climate deny solutions denialism, a lot longer than that uh, cohort would like or imagine. There are lots of things that can be done and we can imagine in the physics of energy in the future. And there are many, many, many clever ideas uh, that are emerging, not least are the next generation of nuclear power plants. Certainly nuclear power uh, is a very low uh, carbon solution, not zero because it uses lots of steel and uh, lots of concrete, uh, both of which require coal and natural gas and oil to produce in significant quantities. But net-net, nuclear plants obviously on a total life cycle basis uh, emit very little carbon dioxide. And more importantly, they occupy uh, very little land. They take They have a very small environmental footprint. In fact, to give you a sort of a calibration point on this as well, uh, going from gas turbines to wind turbines or solar arrays increases humanity's footprint on the land, surface, and materials requirements 
by about a thousand percent. That's a thousand percent more materials and land required per unit of energy delivered all in. If you go in the other direction, if you go from natural gas turbines to nuclear power, you actually reduce the footprint by a thousand percent. Or, or put differently, the difference between the two is not just 2,000%, but nuclear and wind solar, it's a million percent. It's a huge, huge difference in terms of the net footprint of humanity uh, when it comes to chasing nuclear fission. The problem is nuclear power plants uh, are still too expensive, but there are hundreds of new designs. I dare say hundreds, but let's just say there's certainly at least four or five dozen very credible practical new designs for different classes of nuclear power plants. These will become practical. Many of them, they will get built, I believe, but it will take time. Uh, not, not months, not a few years, but certainly a decade or more, maybe two decades have significant impact, but that is coming and will come. But keep in mind that when it comes to the world's energy systems, about 20% of all energy goes into making electricity. So even if we made everything all solar, all nuclear, you're still taking on only 20% of the energy system. If you imagine charging batteries, forget what I said earlier about batteries with nuclear electricity or solar electricity, that's fine. Uh, but light duty vehicles where batteries are going uh, comprise roughly 30% uh, of all oil or put differently, 10 or 15% of all world's energy. So you have an impact, but it's not a transition that abandons hydrocarbons. That's the point of the challenge with ecosystems of the world that run our society. We have other things that people talk about, hydrogen, but keep in mind that hydrogen is uh, expensive. Uh, right now it's roughly 300% more expensive than just burning natural gas. And there's no known path to make it as cheap as natural gas, but it's not crazy to think that new forms of, uh, of electrolysis, in fact, more likely new catalysts invented by some future chemist, some genius somewhere will make it cheap and easy to produce hydrogen. That could happen. Same is true of room temperature superconductivity, which if it were cheap and existed, probably will exist one day, would make uh, batteries a way to store electricity as cheap as we store oil. That would be world changing. It would be profound. No one knows how to do that. Uh, if we want to chase that path, what we need to do is something that, again, policymakers are not eager to do because it doesn't sound as appealing as a quick solution is we need to fund more basic science and basic research, not directed research, basic science and basic research to keep teasing out of nature some of the tricks that are, are doubtless still there to do things in clever way, do the equivalent in chemistry that we, if you like, we've done in the nuclear fission, nuclear fusion. Speaking of nuclear things, clearly possible. We know it exists because of the sun. Uh, we are still a long, long way away from practical machines, but assume for the sake of discussion that tomorrow we hear an announcement that there's a break-even fusion reaction. That is, as much energy produced as went in to make the fusion happen, which hasn't happened yet anywhere on Earth. The day that happens, we will be on a path to figure out how to build a machine that could be a practical commercial machine. To do that, we'll take another decade to start building them, another decade. So we're more than two decades away from magic fusion and having any impact on humanity. To state that fact, we could debate a little bit about whether it's two decades or it might be four decades, maybe it's 18 years if we get lucky. That's not denying that fusion isn't a solution to not burning hydrocarbons. It's that it's a recognition of the reality of the physics and engineering that we now know.
So in the end, what we have is uh, a search for things that are as consequentially different uh, from what we have today as oil, gas, and coal were different from what preceded history. So we want we want technologies that do the equivalent of going from wood and animal and muscle power and, and burning dung, literally, which so a lot of that goes in the world, to the world of combustion, internal combustion, steam engines, and power plants. We want to make that leap again. It is not it is not unrealistic to think that such a leap is possible in the physics of the universe we live in, but it is a, it is profoundly unrealistic to think that it's going to happen with the technologies that we're using today. The technologies we use today were invented not only yesterday, a long time ago. The future that we imagine will be radically different from the present hasn't been invented yet. Where where will it come from? Well, you know, I'll throw a couple more ideas out. Uh, the, the idea of room temperature superconductivity is, is not so crazy. Uh, MIT chemists, uh, physical scientists have, have managed to tease uh, out of the, We'll call it the physics of graphene, which is single atom layer carbon sheets that when they're twisted just so into what's called a magic angle, which is, of course, typical physicists to give us kind of cute names to a phenomenology. When you twist it to the magic angle, the graphene sheets become superconducting. Who knew? Nobody knew this. This was discovered only recently, in fact, by a scientist uh, whose name is Pablo Herrero, Herrero at the MIT, brilliant, brilliant discovery, probably Nobel class discovery. Uh, it may indeed lead to profoundly new kinds of materials as important to the future as let's say the discovery of polymers in the first place or crystalline silicon to make semiconductors of photovoltaic cells. Are we there yet? No, not even close. Can we imagine getting there? Of course we can. The fact that we're not there now is not denying that there aren't solutions to not using hydrocarbons in the long-term future. It's just a statement again, a fact. Uh, I'll throw one other idea out, which is more practical and related to one of the limits that I outlined earlier, which is to do with the fact we are not now mining, nor is anyone apparently planning to mine enough materials to produce the machines of the so-called energy transition, the wind and solar machines and the batteries and electric cars. That's in large part because mining has not changed much in a long time. It's a it's a big, difficult industry, digging lots of rocks up, lots of people, lots of hazards, um, really not, not easy. It is entirely clear that the uh, development of new classes of physical chemistry through supercomputers and supercomputer modeling is now on the horizon. We can begin to imagine to make materially significant improvements and changes in those very difficult industrial domains to in, indeed lower the cost of getting those minerals, to use more of them, to make more batteries, more solar arrays. I think that's coming. And that's in fact coming, coming much faster than new kinds of batteries. We can imagine using robots more than people in mines rather than children. Why would we do that? Because if you're a mining business, you would setting aside the moral feature of not using children. You're looking for cheap labor. If the robot becomes cheaper than the than the person to do the difficult and dangerous mining process, one would use the robot. Those classes of, of autonomous and semi-autonomous robots, which were only in science fiction, as I've said in many earlier podcasts, are no longer science fiction. They're now sci science fact. They're engineering fact. They're emerging rapidly. In, in this coming decade, we'll begin to see I think a revolution in the mining sector because of the combination of physical robots 
and artificial intelligence and cloud computing controlling systems. And we're not going to run out of copper. Uh, it's just going to take a little while to figure out how to make the next phase change in how to acquire minerals from the earth with lower costs and lower environmental impacts. But that's clearly coming. But it's not coming now. And the batteries that we build now to make EVs today, it's not here now, uh, are what they are. And they will lead to huge environmental impacts, huge economic impacts, huge social impacts, big geopolitical impacts, all negative. To, to deny that that is what we are doing is uh, profoundly dangerous. And in fact, in some cases, I would say immoral. So that's that's where we are. We're with a uh, a world that has now migrated from debating the computer models and forecasts about what the world will look like in 50 or 100 years in terms of climate to using the same language to, uh, I guess you have to say without, without any exaggeration, attempt to silence people, and I'm not alone in this, who are trying to eliminate and educate the consequences of massive decisions being made that have consequences not unlike what's going on in Europe, economic consequences, geopolitical consequences, and others which, uh, frankly, could be more pervasive and long-lasting and more severe than what I hope will be a short-lived war in Europe. So enough of the reality check uh, and a brief rant against this odious new label of climate solutions denialism. You, um, you are welcome to weigh in on this. If you have an opinion, <laughs> you think I've, I've misrepresented something, please send me the usual emails or questions at the portals. And, and as always, if you are finding these podcasts interesting and useful, uh, it's enormously helpful, as every podcaster says, for you to provide a rating. Uh, we all prefer positive ratings on whatever platform you're using. And that's it for this. Uh, maybe I'll change the podcast to the Mills Rant instead of The Last Optimist, but, but I'm not going to do that. That is, that is it for this time from the last optimist. <laughs>